The sermon you're about to hear is re-recorded in studio due to technical difficulties during our service beyond our control. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Sermons podcast, the preaching ministry of Prospect Baptist Church. This podcast is dedicated to the faithful exposition of the scripture and the edification of the local church. This is Parker Smith, senior pastor of Prospect Baptist, located in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's word, point you toward the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn them to the book of Malachi, chapter number three. We're going to be in verses six through 12 this morning, and I'm grateful to be back in the book of Malachi. I feel much more at home with this type of exposition, namely coming at a text in its natural progression of the biblical narrative and in its proper context. And I hope that over the last couple of weeks that you have seen that even in preaching a quote-unquote topical sermon, there is a way to do so expositionally, but it does require a great deal of work to unpack the full context and storyline to ensure that I'm speaking, thus says the Lord, and not thus says the pastor. For you should not care much about my opinion, but only that what the Lord says through his word. And his word, beloved, is not subject to your opinion or to my opinion. Someone can have an opinion of the Bible or the things of the Lord and just be wrong. The word is subject, rather, to right interpretation, to proper understanding, that which was in accord with the word of God and the truth of God and consistent with the apostolic teaching as as well as within Christian orthodoxy. But this morning, we find ourselves again looking at the minor prophet Malachi. Just by way of reminder, we find Israel in the book of Malachi disillusioned, they're discouraged, they're doubting, they're cynical. The people had not learned their lesson from the exile. They had grown skeptical of God's love. They're careless in their worship. They're indifferent to the truth. They're disobedient to the covenant. They're faithless in their marriages, and they're stingy with their offerings. And a few weeks ago, if you remember, in Malachi chapter 2, the people demand God's justice when, in fact, they're the ones who were unjust. They had profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. They had forsaken the covenant and their marital vows, and they were even accusing God of siding with the wicked when in fact they were the wicked ones. All of this was pointing us to the coming Messiah, the one who would live faithfully before the Lord and keep the covenant, namely Jesus Christ. And all of this rather exposing the true nature of the problem with Israel that we've seen time and time again, that is their corrupt hearts. And the Lord in this passage not only exposes their corruption, but he calls them to change. He calls them to repent. He calls them to return to the Lord and to live by faith. And so out of the honor and reverence of the reading of God's word, would you stand as we read together Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, 
How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vine of your field shall not fail fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and you would give us ears to hear this morning. I pray that we would see Christ and him exalted in this text, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Father, I pray that you would work through your spirit and your spirit would help us to receive and to hear your word and to believe it in faith and to apply it in our lives that we might leave here changed. Father, we love you, but help us to love you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to call your attention to a couple of things this morning, the first of which is God's call to repentance. God's call to repentance. Again, this is coming off the heels of Israel's plea for justice, God rebuking the people, and he promises a coming judgment unless they repent. And verse 6 is really a bridge statement. It begins with for or because or since I have not changed, or since I do not change, declares the Lord, you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. You have not ceased to be. You have not been consumed. You have not been brought to an end. In other words, the only thing preventing the Lord from wiping them out for being transgressors and sinners and covenant breakers, the only thing preventing this was his covenant faithfulness. When Israel questions, you may remember in Malachi chapter one, the Lord responds to their question of, and how have you loved us? The Lord responds to that is in this way, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. You didn't deserve this, Israel, is what the Lord is proclaiming. Yet I have loved you, and in total freedom and in complete grace, God says, I have loved you, and I have made my covenant with you, and I'm committed to my covenant faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 7, we've seen this before, of when the Lord chose Israel. He chose them out of all the people of the earth to be his treasured possession. And it was not because they were more in number, declares the Lord. And comes down in verse 7 and 8, for they were the fewest of all the people. But the Lord, it was because the Lord loves you, he says. And in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look at verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And because of who I am, says the Lord, I change not. 
I am the Lord who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love. You, O children of Jacob, because of who I am, you tricksters, you deceivers, you covenant violators, even you are not consumed because of my grace. Even though in verse seven, look at the text. From the days of your fathers or your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. If Israel had the technology and they could order a sampling from Ancestry.com, here's what would have been said of them. They would have, it would have arrived in the mail a couple of weeks later. Two words, covenant breakers. In other words, this isn't just the problem of the current generation. You are following in the ways of your forefathers. This is the history of Israel. Time and time again, they turned away from the Lord. They constantly rebelled, constantly lacked faith, constantly reviling against him. Beloved, can I submit to you that it's not too far away from our own sinfulness and our own rebellious hearts either, is it? And we too constantly follow in the footsteps of our forefather, Adam. We transgress against the Lord. We are constantly unfaithful, constantly forsaking his commands. And the only reason, beloved, that we're not consumed is because of his covenant through Christ on our behalf. He keeps his covenant. He changes not. He is immutable. He is unchanging. When God saved you, when God called you to himself, he sealed you with his promised Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter one. And God's thoughts of you and his love for you isn't based on your performance, but it is instead upon the Christ finished work on your behalf. And God doesn't change his mind about you thinking, oh, what was I doing when I saved that person? No, God is keeping his covenant through Christ and he is faithful to you and he is forever faithful to his children, those who are in Christ, the, the, the true offspring of Abraham, the true Israel. So Paul would say in Romans chapter eight that we are foreknown. We are predestined, we are called, we are justified and glorified. God is faithful to his people and he finishes what he begins. And yet, look at the offer of the Lord to this stubborn, rebellious, and sinful people. This is absolutely amazing. Look at Malachi 3, verse 7b. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, the grace and mercy of God towards a sinful and rebellious people. God's call to them is not, you're condemned. God's invitation to them is not, you've blown it, so good luck. No, in total grace, God extends to them mercy and he calls them to repentance. God desires for them to return and he loves his children. I mean, who wouldn't want to return to this God? Yet the lie that we so often believe is that God's going to get me. He must be angry. I know he's going to be angry. And beloved, while God is angry with our sin, he always rejoices with our repentance. And here, the Lord extends to them grace, amazing grace, and calls them to covenant obedience and faithfulness. And the only reason while we won't return or we won't come to him is because of our sin and because of our corrupt hearts. And that's exactly what we see here in this text as well. Look at the text, 
Malachi 3.7, return to me and I will return to you, thus says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Here Israel once again shows their rebellion against the Lord. He commands their repentance and instead of repenting, they balk, they question. And they've done time and time again in the book of Malachi, Ugh, how shall we return? The issue at play here is Israel's heart. They're corrupt. They're hardened towards the Lord. And instead of being near to the heart of God, they are, in fact, far from Him. And the issue at play also is that they are forsaking the covenant. Israel was tempted to look around and think, look what the Lord has brought about upon us. He must not love us. And God's response to them is, no, I love you. I haven't changed. My covenant hasn't changed, but you have. You've rebelled against me. You've sinned against me, and you've forsaken my covenant. And as a result, they are not near to the Lord, and he is not near to them. The Lord has left them. And thereby, Israel is experiencing not the blessings of the covenant that they would have received if they were obedient but instead they are receiving all the curses of the covenant because they are covenant violators. This was promised that if they keep the covenant, there would be blessing, but if they broke and abandoned the covenant, there would be the covenant curses that would come upon them. In Leviticus, Leviticus 26, 28, that I will be hostile towards you. Deuteronomy 31, I will forsake them. I will hide my face from them because our God is not with us. Deuteronomy 32, Yahweh rejected them. And so Malachi says here in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse. And what's happening to Israel is exactly what God promised and what Israel knew would happen to them should they abandon and break the covenant. Namely, all the covenant curses would come upon them, and they would not receive the blessing, but the curse of the covenant for not keeping it. And Israel's heart is hard. And Israel sees a God that loves them, and God says, I'm calling you to repentance and blessing, and I'm calling you to myself to return to your healer, to your deliverer, to your father. And the invitation is, return to me. And Israel says, well, how shall we return? And God says, effectively, if that's your attitude, if that's your heart towards my love and my faithfulness and my mercy, and he points more and points further and reveals their true heart and their lack of faith and calls them to more faith and trust in the Lord. And the way in which he does it in this text is a way in which that is so often closest to our hearts as well. And it's through their giving and their money, which brings us to point number two, God's call to faith. God's call to faith. Look at verses eight through 12. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? But you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour for you out a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourers for you so that it will not destroy, it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. 
There's a lot that I could say here, and I certainly won't cover it all, but the topic of tithing begins to dominate the following five verses here. And the Lord's response to Israel is, how do we return to you, Lord? The Lord says, by not robbing me anymore as you've been doing, by not giving me proper tithes and offerings. And there may be a lot of questions that come to our mind when we see this in this text, and I want to address some of those. The first of which is this, is, well, how is this robbery? And the answer to that is that it's robbery because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's Psalm 24.1. It's robbery because all wealth and all the earth belongs to God. That's Psalm 50 in Exodus 19. It's robbery because everything Israel has belongs to the Lord. The land belongs to the Lord. Israel doesn't own the land. They are only allowed to possess it temporarily. And so the first fruits was to be given back and consecrated unto the Lord. It's the first, firstborn in Exodus 13, 2. Children who were in the womb and livestock, Exodus 34. Seed and vegetation and land, Leviticus 27. And finally, it's robbery because the Lord is owed and commands Israel in his covenant law that a tithe is to be given to him. And to withhold that from him is sin and is robbery. And here the Lord is exposing that which may be even discreet or hidden from plain sight. You remember Israel in chapter 2 of Malachi were bringing these worthless and lame sacrifices to the Lord and the priests would see them and they would be approved, yet they could see their deformities and blemishes. They could see that it probably cost them nothing. That was obvious, but their giving was likely more private. No priest had enough access to know if someone wasn't giving, though they could certainly maybe see the ministry budget growing a little smaller. They didn't have access to giving statements of the people or W-2s to measure sufficiency and obedience to tithing or not. It was an area, quite frankly, someone could fly under the radar. Someone could even look at another and scowl against them and say, well, they need to be giving more. Look at this temple and look at this land and appear like all is well, yet their hearts really didn't trust the Lord in this area either. And in so doing, rob God in the process. You may say it this way, you could steal from me and I may not, you may get away with it. You know, I might not catch it. I'm not perfect and I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You can steal from man and maybe fly under the radar enough that no one notices, but you can't take what is owed to God and rob him and expect to get away with it. But it's far worse than just one or two. He says in verse nine, it's the whole nation of you who is doing this? Another question, question may be simply, what is a tithe? It's a word that simply means a tenth. It's not hard math. It's really as simple as moving a comma or a decimal point. God gives you 100 and a tithe is 10. God gives you 1,000 and a tithe is 100. God gives you 15,000 and a tithe is 1,500. And offerings were given in addition to and over a tithe. That is a contribution. A tithe was to be a tenth of Israel's income. In reality, under the tithing law, it actually added up to more than a tenth when the whole tithing law was considered. A second tithe was due annually. A third tithe was due in the third and fifth year. Moreover, there were offerings that were given to the priests, perhaps as much as 2% in addition to this for sacrificial offering. 
on average, the average total was around 25 to 27%, not including animals that were brought for various festivals or certain sacrifices. One commentator, Alan P. Ross, says, says it this way, is that during the Sabbath year, one-seventh of their income over a seven-year period would be given up as well as a 40, 49th of its 49-year period if they kept the Jubilee. Then they were to leave the corners of their fields to be given to the poor so that they can glean. They were also to give the charity. They were to take care of the widow and the orphan and the poor and the stranger. So in the end, if someone today wanted to live under Israel's law of tithes and offerings, it would amount to exceed 40% a year. And yet the Lord commands this of them because it's ultimately a part of their worship. In the same way that when Israel prayed to the Lord, they observed and read the word of God and they kept the law of God that they were commanded to do so, giving was also a part of their worship. Christian giving is a part of worship today, and that's why I say every single week as you come in or when you leave, continue to worship through the giving of your tithes and offerings unto the Lord. It's a part of worship. It's an opportunity for us to say, not just in theory, but in confidence and in sincerity, Lord, I trust you to provide. So much so that even though I may feel like I need 100% of what you give, I will trust your provision even with 90%. I remember when Dr. Tiemann Knight, my Old Testament professor in seminary, said to a group of seminary students, he simply said this, guys, giving is a spiritual issue. Giving is an issue of faith. It's not a financial issue. It's an issue of faith. It's a way to say to God, I trust you to provide in everything. And there I was, a seminary student, fresh out of college, didn't grow up being taught about giving or tithing. But I knew that everything in my heart was telling me that Team and Knight was right. Given was not about finances. It's about faith. It's about trusting God. And I could say that I love God. I could say that I believed Him. But boy, don't you dare ask me to give and live independently apart from the Lord. And, and I was convinced that what Team and Knight was saying to me was true. That I could say I love God, but I, I didn't really put a lot of stock into it when the rubber met the road. I had a part-time job. I was trying to save money for an engagement ring and everything within me said, I can't afford to do this. But I just went before the Lord and I said, I'm, I'm going to put all of that aside and I'm going to put my faith in the Lord. And this includes the area of my finances as well. And beloved, they're not my finances. I'm just a steward of them. They all belong to the Lord. And I didn't know much about percentages. I had heard of a tithe, sure, but I just believed in my heart that a tithe or a tenth was a good place for me to begin. And for the first time in my life as a 23-year-old young seminary student with a part-time job with not a whole lot to give, I began to give a portion of my income, and it was a tithe for me at the time, and I began to give that back to the Lord. And beloved, I'll just tell you, I've never looked back since. And this is not about me. Many of you have that same story, but giving is not about finances. It's about faith. It's about trusting God to supply all of your needs, even if the math might not make sense. Israel will be tempted in the same temptation. They will look around and they would see famine in the land. They would see trouble on the horizon, not realizing that it was their own disobedience that was bringing this about. Many of them were poor. They were oppressed. They certainly weren't well off. And 
every one of them likely thought, well, I'm not so sure about this. <laughs> I mean, I may need some of this. I mean, won't 3% be enough? <laughs> what about 5%? I mean, that's half. Surely, surely half is good enough, right? And Israel would be tempted to give an excuse. And the Lord says, look, it's not a time for you to give an excuse. It's an opportunity for you to exercise dependence and faith and trust in the Lord that I will provide for you. And so the Lord says in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Don't hold back in this. And further, he says, thereby, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing until there is no more need. And don't confuse this with we give in order to be blessed by God. That's not why we give. This is a corporate testing and a promise that we'll see in just a moment. But we don't give to get blessed by God. We give because we have been blessed by God. And it's out of that heart of gratitude and worship to God for who he is and what he's done. But what is the purpose of tithing? Well, you see it in this text, don't we, in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that they may food, there may be food in my house. The word there is bayid. It's the word temple. It's the word for house. It's the word for dwelling. The tithe was to be used in the worship of God. It was to fund the ministry of the temple. It was to provide for the priest and their services unto the Lord. It was to buy bread, to care for the poor, to for supplies, for operating expenses, for maintenance needs within the, within the Lord's house. Often it was kept in a special room called the storehouse that there may be provision, certainly for the priests, but also for the people. We could simply say it this way, it funded the services and ministry of the Lord's work among the people. And don't miss it even within this text, it was given through the proper channels, namely the temple. It was the Lord's house. Folks, not much has changed. Prospect isn't funded by peanut brittle sales or quilting fundraisers. We don't host bingo nights and raise support for a VBS and student camp. We don't turn to auctions or car washes to fund the ministry needs of our church. Our church is, and any church of the Lord Jesus, is funded by and through the faithful giving of God's people, covenanting together to support the work of the ministry within the local church. Our church has needs. We have repairs from time to time. We have updates and renovations. We have personnel needs. Believe it or not, the grass needs to be cut every now and then. Our kids and our students need resources to see the gospel further. Our website isn't free. Our things that we use in worship, our songs and copyrights, it's not free. We pay to use those things. Our printed material, our Sunday school material, our devotional and discipleship material, all of it is funded by the faithful giving of the saints of Prospect Baptist. And giving, that is worship, is giving in tithes and offerings that can only be received by the local church. You may give a portion of your meal ticket over lunch today to a waitress or a waiter. Well, we call that a tip. You may give some money to a local charity to support their work, and we call that a donation. You may support a local nonprofit and a parish church that you ministry that you appreciate and enjoy. And you may give to them and you can call it a donation, but it's not worship and it's not a tithe. Giving to the Lord is to be done through his house, through his church. And when you give in worship unto the Lord, it's giving through the church. And when you give a tenth of that, it's not called a tip, it's not called a donation, it's called a tithe. 
Yet notice also, what is the blessing of tithing? Again, this invitation is to the whole people, the nation of Israel, to test the Lord in this way, not in doubting Him, but to live in faith, to see that God is a God of covenant faithfulness. And where you lack obedience and it has brought about cursing, see that if you live accordance to the word of God and obey the covenant, the covenant blessings will come upon you as well. That the land will receive the rain it needs, the pestilence and devourers, then all the covenant curses will be no more. The destroyers who once destroyed will be rebuked from afflicting the people. And where the covenant curses has come upon and your soil has not yielded crops and your trees haven't yielded fruit, they will start producing fruit. And really the testing that was given, that the Lord was inviting to test the Lord in, was really a testing of the people. Would they live in faith of the Lord or not? Would they do as the Lord says? God says, I haven't changed. I'm the Lord of the covenant. Trust me. Live in, my, live in obedience and faith. And see that when you do that, that the land will not be blessed. It will become a delight. And all the nations will look and they will look and see how the Lord has provided for his people. The nations would come and they would see this weak, fragile nation that was once floundering, once in captivity, an oppressed people were nonetheless faithful to the Lord. And yet look what the Lord their God has done for them. It's just what it looks like to live in faith of the Lord. And the true blessing is following the Lord in faithfulness. The true blessing in giving unto him is rightfully what is rightfully his in worshiping him in all aspects of our life. Which brings us ultimately to the tension of tithing in the new covenant. So we come to the New Testament and under we are under the new covenant. So what do we do with a text like this? And I've tried to point us to reasonable application throughout, and I haven't even held back from using the term tithe in that application. So someone may say, well, pastor, do you believe that a tithe is still binding on a new covenant people? And I would say to you that there is no command in the New Testament that says thou shalt give a tithe. Thou shalt give a ten Ten percent. It's not there. So is it binding on new covenant people? What I would say would be this. It's not binding in the sense of law, but it's reasonable in the sense of love. I'll say that again. It's not binding in the sense of law, but it's reasonable in the sense of love. Because that's ultimately the heart and the faith that's relevant for us today. This is what Jesus was teaching on in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths do not rust nor, nor, nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in this sense, not much has changed. 
The local church still has needs, giving along with prayer and singing and preaching and living and observing baptism and the Lord's Supper is a part of worship. Giving is also a part of worship. Giving along with our posture and habits of giving so often reveal our true heart condition, do they not? And I think you could simply say that you can't simply say this, that you just come over to the New Testament and tithing is somehow abolished by Jesus and the command to tithe is just abolished by Jesus. That I don't think you can simply just say that. I think it's more complex than that. Why would I say that? One of the reasons is that the principle of tithing, though it is not a part of the law, precedes the law. So it's not a, though it is a part of the law, the principle of tithing actually precedes the law. Abraham tied to Melchizedek in Genesis 14. It's also discussed in Hebrews chapter 7. Jacob vowed a tithe to the Lord at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28. The practice was later codified in the law, but tithing is a biblical practice that precedes the law and really exists on its own apart from the law. Second, though there's not a command that says thou shalt give a tenth or thou shalt give a tithe, you also won't find any notion that says, well, 5% will do or 2% is just fine. Don't worry about it. On the contrary, Jesus in Matthew 23 and as well as Luke 11, in his rebuke of the Pharisees, has some interesting words here. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 23 and in Luke 11, Verse 42, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel. So Jesus warns of a tithing that can be in the form of a religious cover-up for injustice. Yet he doesn't throw out the notion of tithing either, does he? These things you ought to have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the other, tithing. Thirdly, Paul assumes that giving would continue to be proportioned to the manner with that which one has received. Say that again. Paul assumes that giving would continue in a proportioned manner, in a proportioned manner to that which one has received. Yet more sacrificial giving is encouraged as well. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints as directed the churches of Galatia. So you are so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no need of collection when I come. This proportion giving is the same principle at play as tithing. Further, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, For each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here he's encouraging generosity and the joy of giving. Paul further says of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians, just one chapter prior in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
for they gave according to their means, and I can testify in beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They were eager to give themselves, eager to give unto the Lord, eager to help in the ministry of Christ and the word to be furthered. They were eager not to hold on to material possessions, but give it away. So while we may not be under a law of tithing, for we are recipients of a new and better covenant through Christ, yet our lives should reflect the same love, the same dependence, and the same faith demonstrated behind the principle of tithing. And here's what I'll challenge anyone with this morning. That if the reason you are avoiding tithing is because of legalism, Know that there is another danger that is lurking, and that is called being enslaved by greed and materialism. And know this, my heart and no one's heart is that of legalism when it comes to giving. No one's looking to pull out a ruler or a measuring stick to look at a magnifying glass and snoop around anybody's finances. That's no one's heart. Beloved, you can give and you can give generously. You can give a tithe or beyond that and it not be legalism. And if the reasoning that you may be quick to shun a tithe just so you can get around of it like it's a monkey on your back, if that's your heart and that's your attitude, could that not also reveal an ill motive within your heart as well? And ultimately, our giving in the New Testament is more than financial. It's giving of our time, our talents, and our lives. And if we just want to stay in the New Testament, fine. We should be giving everything to the Lord, not just a tenth. We should be giving much more than a tithe. But in our giving, we ought not carve out so conveniently a financial commitment of worship to the Lord either. To say, I'll give my time, I'll help, I'll help in this way, I'll help in other ways. I may even give to certain areas from time to time, but I won't give regularly from the increase that the Lord gives to me. Beloved, if that's your mindset, can I just say to you, something is off in your heart if that's your mindset. But don't miss this. Because of what Jesus has done, because of what Christ has accomplished, every believer ought to be giving. We have no excuse not to be giving to the Lord. Because of what Jesus has done, every Christian ought to be giving. And I just submit to you, a tithe, a tenth, is a good and reasonable place to start. If you're concerned about becoming legalistic, don't be. Just start, maybe with even a lesser percent, but make it a goal to give a tenth sooner rather than later. But here's what changed me. It's understanding that God owns everything. Everything that I have is from Him, and He will provide for my every need. The question really isn't about how much of my money will I give, because it's not my money. I'm a steward of what he's given me. The real question is this, how much of God's money are you going to give back to him? The real question is, am I going to give all of myself and live in faith in the Lord in every aspect of my life? This is where it comes full circle. That the same God who calls him to himself and calls us to repentance also calls us to live in faith. And that faith is to be expressed in every aspect of our lives. 
Are there holes or inconsistencies in your faith this morning? Are you faithfully following the Lord? What about even in the areas of the specifics of this text? Are you following the Lord faithfully in your finances? Are you giving unto the Lord? Because it's not about finances. It's really about faith. How are you doing in this area, beloved? Can a Christian rob God? The answer to that is yes. How so? How can a Christian rob God? By declaring that everything within him belongs to the Lord that their heart belongs to him, that everything of their life belongs to him, that they're totally surrendered, that they totally trust him, all the while refusing to worship him through giving and refusing to trust God with the material blessing and giving of their lives. Do your habits and practices in this area reveal that something may be off in your heart? Everything is good on the outside. No one else really knows. No one else really sees but the Lord does, doesn't he? And that's all that matters. Is he calling you to repentance this morning? Calling you to live and trust him in faith? Because even in this text, you see Christ. All of this points to him. All of this points to our need for a covenant keeper, not a rebel like us who breaks God's covenant. It points to the Messiah in whom God is well pleased so that it is in him we too are acceptable in God's sight. It points to him, God's covenant, and because of Christ, God's covenant will never be broken in whom we are safe from the wrath of God and the judgment of God. It points to Christ in whom all of the condemnation for our sin and all the covenant curses were placed upon Jesus and therefore there is no condemnation left for us for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet in light of Christ, it also exposes our own wickedness and our corrupt hearts. And it points us to our desperate need of his grace constantly. That us rebels, us revilers, us haters of God, who, whose hearts need to be transformed, they can only be transformed, not through the law. Thou must fill in the blank. They can only be transformed by his grace. They can only be transformed by the new birth. They can only be transformed by his spirit. Let's pray together. Well, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. If you'd like more information about Prospect Baptist Church, you can visit our website at prospectbaptistchurch.org or you can find us on Facebook by searching Prospect Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Tennessee. If you live in the Fayetteville area, we would love for you to join us in worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. If you're not comfortable doing that at this time, we understand, but please know we are live streaming our services on Facebook Live. We do hope to see you soon and look forward to you worshiping with us. Until next time on the Prospect Sermons Podcast.